at, let me just say, as he said, it has been an incredible, an incredible summer here at EBC. God has been working so powerfully in so many different ways, just in a number of different ways. And we just give glory to him that we get to be a part of something special. I'm so thankful to get to be a pastor at a church that is alive and vibrant. And I'm so thankful for that opportunity. Well, we have been uh, pressing into a series called Healthy Church. And we've really been just kind of trying to discover from the word, just what does that look like? What does that mean for us? And, and I have to say that this past week, I've really just been humbled by uh, just an outpouring of, from many of you who were in our worship experience this past Sunday, last week, and God just met powerfully with us last Sunday. It was just a great time of prayer, a great time of worship and engaging in that. And so many of you, and, and I, I've been, uh, you know, speaking here at EVC for nearly 15 years now when we started the church. I've been in the ministry for 25 years. And, and this past week, I've probably had more response from people just saying how the Lord touched your life in the service. And that's just, that's an incredible thing and a humbling thing for me to hear that, not because of anything that, that we did or anything like that. It's just this, whenever you point people in the direction of communing and having fellowship with God, talking to him, leading them into prayer, here's what I'm discovering and that we should know is that you can't go wrong with that. When you begin to encourage people to engage God in that kind of way, you can't go wrong with that as a church. And what I felt like God wanted me to communicate to you today is many of you said that was just such a powerful experience where you were really in this intimacy and closeness with God. Here's what I felt like God's been saying to me to say to you all week is God wants you to experience that every single day, not just on a Sunday. Not just when you come to a worship service or a worship experience, but that God wants to work that powerfully and be that close to you and have that kind of fellowship with you on a day in and day out basis, moment by moment, living in, in fellowship with him. And so what we've been doing through the summer months here is we've been just studying the aspects of what makes a church, a healthy church, and we know this and we've learned this from the get-go of when we started the church over 15 years ago, we know this, that it's, it's not about a building. When we started EBC, we weren't about a building then. We didn't have a building. We met in homes and then we moved to a school facility and then God blessed us with this place about 10 years ago. And, and before long, we'll be transitioning into something different. And what we've been just having on our hearts is to be certain that just as we learned that we weren't about a building and have known that we are not about a building now, we don't ever want that to change in our church. We want whatever building God blesses us with next, we want to view that in a proper kind of way as just a tool. It's not the church. We understand that you as the individuals and that me as an individual, we make up that church body. Amen. We make up that healthy church. And so we've not started with this series by saying, well, let's try to get our church as a whole healthy and maybe that'll trickle down into people's lives. No, we've not started that way. The way we've started was saying and, and challenging us as individuals to really do a, a self and spiritual examination of where we are in our relationship with Jesus. We know this, that if we as individuals are spiritually healthy, you can count on having a healthy church. If you are having fellowship with God by praying to him the way that you did last week and you're doing that on a regular basis and you're talking to God and you're not just coming to a service one time a week and that is like the, the only part of your relationship with Christ that's happening, we know that if you're walking with him daily, we're going to have a healthy church. We're going to have a, a healthy outpouring of that. And, and many of you even said you'd, you'd sensed even kind of this, this sense of a, a revival spiritually in your own life. And I love that word. It's, it's a churchy word, no doubt. But, but revival in churches, you need to understand, always starts with individuals. 
It always starts by God doing something special and gripping your heart in a special kind of way. And that begins to, to, to spread, for lack of better terminology, throughout the rest of the congregation as God begins to work in people's lives and people take notice of that. And so we want to just continue kind of pressing into that. What is God saying to us about our own spiritual walk? So that's the way that you look at this and the way that you view this as a part of the church and the body of Christ. What is God doing in my own personal life? So here is a, a question that we start with today and a few comments that we'll make. And then we'll look in the book of Acts and see from God's word today what he wants to say to us. And then we'll have communion together. But the question is this, is what is the one thing that you actually have and that you actually possess that God desires from you? more than anything else that you have the, the ability to either give that to him or withhold that from him. What is that one thing? And more than anything, here's what it is. It's your worship. Now, it's not that God needs your worship because as we'll read in a few moments, God doesn't need anything from us. But God actually, what he desires more than anything is to be in fellowship with you. It's for you to experience that relationship with him, for you to properly relate to him and experience a day-to-day -day worship relationship with him. What God desires more than anything is, is what did Jesus say? Uh, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. What is that? That's all of your being. That is your entirety of your life being a life of worship unto him. That's what God desires more than anything else. And you have the ability to withhold that from him. So let's begin to talk about worship just a bit. And we'll look at that for the next few weeks as we close out this series in the summer before we move into our next series of studying God's word. What is worship? When we think of worship, many of us think of worship as is maybe just the time that we spend singing, maybe 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. Some of us may think of worship as the experience that is contained to an hour and 15 or 30 minutes on a Sunday morning, whatever that may be. Many of us think of worship in that kind of mindset. And so we kind of limit, we limit the way that we view worship. And I want to tell you that that's not what God is after. What God is after more than anything is something that is much different than that. Um, it's something that's deeper. It's bigger than what I've just described to you. Worship is simply about this word right here. It's about value. It's about value. It's what we ascribe value to. It's where we'll start. The simple definition is where we'll start. Uh, and we'll get more specific in the coming weeks as we unpack this a little further. But for starters, if you're taking some notes, write this down. Worship is our response to what we value the most. Worship is our response to what we value the most. That's what it is. And we're all about worship on any given day. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, who you're around. Worship is about saying this person or this thing or this experience or whatever it is matters most in my life. It's the thing that I put first that I give the highest priority in my life. And, and that may look like a, a number of different things for different groups of people. For some people, we would say that that's a relationship. A relationship maybe that I have, if I'm married, that I have with my spouse. And maybe that's, that's something that I begin to, in some ways, even worship. It could be uh, a dream that I have. And maybe it's my desire to be successful. And, and that's what I worship. And that's what I invest or I ascribe most value to. It might be material possessions. It could be things. It could be your home. Or it could be the, the vehicles that you drive. Or just stuff in general is something that you value the most. For some of us, it could be our kids. And yes, it's easy for us to allow our kids to, to become the main priority in our life. And that even sounds right. It sounds like that's what we're supposed to do. But listen, even the relationship with our children can become an idol in our life. It could be that maybe it's their activities or their sports that becomes the most important thing in our lives. It drives the entire life of the family. It could be a job or it could be some kind of pleasure 
or some kind of addiction that I have that I've that I've bought into. And and now that addiction kind of possesses me. For some of us, what most maybe mostly is important to us is our image and the way that others view us or the way that others will look at us. And so that can very easily become the most important thing in our life. For some of us, it could be this. And this is this is a tough one to admit, but it could be food. <laughs> Food very easily for us, and I, I admitted to you guys a couple of years ago, as I was uh, as I was very much overweight and uh, struggling with that, and had been struggling with that for over twenty years of my life. And I shared with you in a series two years ago, as God began to grip my heart about that particular area, that food had become a god in my life. I had shared with you that I had worshipped at the altar of Whataburger on many a day. All right. And how food literally had become the most important thing. You say, how did it become an idol? Well, that's something I really had to check out. I had to really examine my heart. And I discovered that it was what I went to whenever I was happy. It's where I went when I was sad. It was whenever I was stressed out. It's what I sought for comfort. It's what was on my mind in kind of the idle moments of time. It's what I was thinking about. And I'm just telling you, and I'm not saying this is everyone. I'm saying this was an idol in my life was something that I really battled and God had to bring conviction in my life to show me that I actually was at a place where rather than just, you know, um, eating to live, I was living to eat. And that was something that had become an idol in my life. So what is it for you? Maybe it's a hobby or maybe it's, you know, whatever name you put on it or the name you give this person or this thing, whatever it is you've concluded in your heart, what is it that is of most worth to you? Maybe, you know, it's, it's something that I've not even mentioned, but, but what it becomes is it becomes this, this object of our worship. And, and, and I'm not just talking about the religious crowd. Um, we all worship something. We all ascribe worth and value to something. And worship tells us what we value the most. And, and as a result, that determines our actions. And, and again, how do you know where and what you worship? That's a great question. How do we know what it is that we value the most? And what I found in my own life, as, as I have to assess my life before I ever preach these messages, I have to really start looking at my life and seeing if there is something that's not consistent in my life where I can begin to speak about that to others. And does God need to do a work in my life before I ever say anything about it to you? And one of the things that I found that I can begin to discover if there's some idolatry in my life is, is I begin to ask these kinds of questions. Well, what, what do I think about the most? What do I think about the most? Or, or where do I invest most of my time or my energy? Here's one that I found that, that is something that's a checkpoint for me is where am I investing financially? What do I invest my money in? That's, that's just a really good kind of basic way to begin to find out what it is that we value the most. What has my attention? What has my allegiance? And what we'll find is there will be this trail that will lead to a throne. And on that throne there, you'll find an altar. And typically that is where we will worship. What is it that you worship? What is of highest value to you? To you? Now, I know that there's not going to be anybody that's going to be like, well, I worship my house or I worship my job or I worship my, my kids or, or their sports or I worship this. I mean, we don't just walk around saying that. Most of us as believers are going to say, well, obviously, Bart, what is of most value to me is my relationship with Jesus Christ. But I want you to know, and, and we know how to go through the religious activity. We know how to go through the motions. I'm speaking of myself here. I know how to do these things that look religious. And I know how to appear as if God is first in my life. I know how to do that. I figured that out. But I'm reminded of Jesus who came to a group of people who were very religious. And what he said to them is he said, these are people who praise me with their lips but their what? Their hearts are far from me. And I'm not saying that's you. But I'm saying there are certain times in my life that that's certainly true about me. 
what Jesus was saying in those moments as he's talking about worship. He's talking about, listen, it's easy to say that we worship something. It's easy to go through the motions. It's easy to pretend that we are a worshiper of God. It's easy to do all the right things and check off the list and, and kind of go through the motions of a relationship with God. But what Jesus is saying, what I really want more than anything is I want your hearts. I want to be in a, a real and thriving relationship with you. Worship also is not, it's not restricted to a time or a place. You can go just about anywhere and see people that are in all kinds of postures of worship. You could go to a local sporting event or you could go to a concert and you'll see people that are engaged in worship. You'll see people that are getting after it. Some are raising their hands and some are, are clapping and some are standing in awe. And in many cases, it has nothing to do with the God of the universe. It's interesting how I've been to different places all over the world. And you can go all over the world throughout all of history and find that mankind is littered with literally trillions of little idols. When I had the opportunity to go to Southeast Asia, and then I had the opportunity to go to India and a few other places, you know what I noticed? I noticed that people were worshiping everywhere that I went. They're worshiping something. They're looking for something and trying to find something in every corner of the earth, in every age. Every, mankind has always had its gods, little G-O-D-S. And the compelling question is this, why? Why are we like this? What is the deal with that? Why are we so insatiably drawn from one thing to the next, seeking to find satisfaction? And here is the reason. It's because we have been made by God to worship. You have been created. You are made by God to worship. And you're made to be in fellowship with Him. Look at what Paul writes in Colossians. He says this in chapter 1, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Now, I want you to read the next sentence with me out loud. Say it with me out loud, church. What does it say? Everything was created through him and what? For him. You see, you were created not only just by Jesus, but you were created for Jesus. Not because he needed you, but because he wanted you. You were created to be in relationship with him. And, and because we were created for him as a result, there's like this internal homing device that is riveted to your soul that is seeking to be close to God. It's seeking to be close to your maker. It's an internal Godward magnet that's pulling you toward him. Because you've been stamped with his image. We could say it this way. You have been pre-wired, so to speak, to worship. You're made to worship. You're looking to satisfy this internal drive. And so what do people do? We will try anything. We'll try anything and everything to try to bring some measure of satisfaction because we know in our heart of hearts, whether we are a Christian or not, we know that there has to be something more to this life. There has to be more, right, than just making house payments and going to work day in and day out. There has to be something more. In the New Testament book of Acts, as we continue looking at the expansion of the development of the early church, what we find is one of the main characters, the Apostle Paul, is going into a city, the city of Athens in Greece there. Greece, as you know, was this epicenter of culture and intellectualism and philosophy. I mean, it was this amazing place. And Paul goes there and Paul is going to find himself engaged in dialogue with the Athenians. And he's going to find himself right in the smack dab in the, in the center of the, the, the intellectual center of the world where some of the greatest minds and some of the greatest speakers and greatest philosophers were all trying to do this one thing. You know what they were trying to do? Figure out life. What's the meaning? What's the purpose? 
So Paul is going to go there and he's going to begin to feel burdened as he walks around the city of Athens and he starts looking at all of the idols that are erected all over the place there. He's going to begin to notice all of these idols and he gets heavily burdened for these people because they are searching. They're searching for significance. They're searching for meaning in life. And I was thinking this week, what if Paul came here to the Eagle Mountain Saginaw area and he just began to kind of walk the streets of this area in which we live, what would he find? I dare say Paul may not find those same kinds of idols that are erected in that manner, but what Paul might find would be a lot of idolatry. He'd find the same kind of idolatry that was happening in Athens that happens here, even in our own lives, where we elevate other things above this relationship with God. Paul would call it a city full of idols. Look at what he says in chapter 17, verse 16 in the New Living. Let me read it to you. While Paul was waiting for them, the them is Silas and Timothy, his partners in ministry. He was waiting for them to join him. So he had a little bit of time to walk around the city and just take it all in. He was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews That's where he always started was with the Jews first. And he wanted to reason with the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So this wasn't like a one-time event. Paul was, was going back day after day, building relationship, dialoguing with them, talking with them about this. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Again, some of the greatest minds. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. And then they took him to the high council and whatever it was that Paul was saying, they still wanted to hear what he had to say. They took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. Now, it should be explained that all of the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. In other words, Paul was right in the middle of this great intellectual place where they really were searching. They really loved to dialogue about it. They really wanted to understand life. And so Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. And I love this. Men of Athens. Now, I want you to notice this next sentence. I notice this, that you are very, say it with me, church. You are very religious, right? You're very religious, he says. You're religious in a number of ways. You're religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it. To an unknown God. So Paul's walking around. He sees all these gods with names on it. And then he notices one right here that has a a tag on it there. And it's to an unknown God. I mean, this is fascinating to me. Paul, when he was walking through Athens, didn't find a lack of worship. He didn't find an apathy in their worship. Do you know what he found? An uncertainty in their worship. Even with all of their idols. Even with all of their altars. Even what we could say here in maybe the Eagle Mountain Saginaw area, even with all of our churches and all of our religious activity, these intellectuals and these cultural giants wanted to cover their bases, being sure that all the deities were happy. Why? Because in their hearts, as much as they had searched, they were realizing that they still hadn't found the answer. So, you know what, let's just, let's just make another God here to an unknown one. The one that maybe we just don't know. We want to cover our bases. It's almost kind of comical to me as I think about this. It's interesting to think that so much has changed physically to the, to the place of Athens of old. It's ancient idols lie in ruins. 2,000 years have passed since that time where Paul was walking in that city. But you know one thing that hasn't changed is the hearts of mankind. Because we're still doing the same thing today. We're still looking for things to, to uh, you know, bring satisfaction and meaning to our lives. We're still looking and we still worship many things. And we may not have idols like these kinds of idols that were all up over this town. But we have different kinds of idols in our lives. 
things that we're seeking to, to bring fulfillment to us and satisfaction. And, and I don't know where you fall in this today. For some of you, maybe you would hear this today and that's really not what you're needing to hear today. And I get that and I praise God for that, that Jesus Christ is first place in your life. But there may be some of you who are here this morning or this afternoon now that, that you are still searching. You're searching for the meaning of life. And maybe you, you know, have been looking to things or you've been looking to pleasure or you've been looking for some other, you know, satisfaction in your life. You've been looking through a relationship or maybe you've thought that this addiction that maybe you've caved into, that it's going to bring you some fulfillment. And there's still this void in your life. And you're going, man, I have tried everything. I'm sick of trying. There has to be something more. Has to be something more. So Paul, he takes this deep breath. He's going to just begin to point them to the gospel. He's going to begin to point them towards Jesus. And even in the midst of mockers, in the midst of those that would scoff him for pointing people to Jesus, he's going to begin to point them to Christ and the truth and, and, and to point them to the answers of life. Paul was going to say this. I want to introduce you to the God of all gods. This is what he says. This God whom you worship without knowing... Isn't it interesting that they were still worshiping, right? Because we're worshipers. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And we've been in healthy church and we've been saying it's not about the building. God's not constrained to this particular building or to this place as if, you know, it's kind of like sometimes we think of it this way as a Christian. We think that we come and we, we experience some time with God and now we're going to go out of these doors and we're going to go about our life and then we'll see God next week, right? Whenever we come back as if God's kind of at the door saying, thanks for coming. Glad you came today. See you next week. And, and as he watches the cars drive off, God bless you. I I mean, well, I'm God, me bless you, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, and then he's maybe gonna go play a little ping pong up in the youth room, you know, and he hangs out here and he plays on the organ some up here whenever we're not here because he's not, he's not engaged with us. And that's kind of what uh, many of us, what our mentality is like is that our relationship with God is kind of one hour out of the week. And what God is saying more than anything else is I want you to be engaged with me in relationship, thriving relationship, day after day, moment after moment. And Paul is saying, God doesn't live in your man-made temples. And look at what else he's going to say. And human hands can't serve his needs for he, what does it say? He has no needs. Now that's an awesome thing to think about. We've been saying in this series all throughout this summer, and some could either take it by and take it offensively or some you could actually grasp this and and get it. And it brings such great blessing to your heart. But here is the thing. God, we've been saying this. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. That's for sure. But here is the beautiful thing that we learn. When God created us, he didn't need us. He wasn't lonely. And so he's going to make, you know, us because he's lonely. He didn't need us. He doesn't need us. God wanted us. He wants you and he wants you to experience him in all of, of the fullness there. He doesn't need us is what Paul says. And look at what he's going to say next. He himself gives life and he gives breath to everything. And what does he do, church? And he satisfies every what? Need. He is the satisfaction of your life. He is what brings you that fulfillment in that relationship with him. That's what Paul's pointing them to is Jesus, a relationship with Jesus from one man. This is where he's going to begin to point to Christ. He created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations. Now he's speaking of God's sovereignty here. The nations here, this word is ethnos. It means people groups. He did, he pur his purpose was for the nations to do what? To seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and do what? And find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Now say verse 28 with me out loud, okay? Let's say it together. For in him we live and we move and we what? We exist. 
Paul saying to them, you're trying to find your meaning. You're trying to find your life. You're trying to find why you exist. And he's saying in Jesus, he is the one that brings life. He is the one that we move in. He is the one that is our existence. No wonder the whole world is filled with worshipers. You've been created with a searching soul that's been designed by God in that way that you will find no rest until you find your rest in him. That's what Paul is saying. You'll not find rest until you find your rest in him. Some of your own poets have said we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. He's pointing them to Jesus again. I want you to see that it's Jesus and that he is the only one who is worthy of our worship. And he's saying there are no more excuses. He's saying that this mystery has been unveiled and has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 32, because what you're going to see is you're going to see responses that are still common today whenever the gospel is given. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in what? In contempt. And whenever you speak the gospel or you live that out, there are always going to be those around you that are going to see that with contempt. And they may jeer at you and they may call you like they called Paul, that babbler, as you point people towards Christ. But others, so there's that one that's going to rebel and, and reject Christ. But others said, we want to hear more about this. There's an openness there. And so there are some who have an openness and maybe they're not quite ready yet, but they're still seeking and they're trying to find out more about who Jesus is. And that may be you today. And look, that ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined and became believers. And among them were Dionysius, a member of the council. So what you're going to see is they're going to show that there was a, a man of great influence there was also a woman named Damaris. So you had male and female. And it says, and others were then with them. So there are also going to be those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and recognize him for who he is. So the big question may come for you before we get into communion today is this. Why is this so important for me to understand the fact that I am created to worship? Why are you bringing this up, Bart? Why do we need to talk about this? Because here is what I know is that I am prone. I am prone to idolatry in my life. I am prone toward it. And I know the truth of who Jesus is, but so often other things begin to, to become elevated in my life above Jesus Christ. And God wants us to be careful with this because you want to be certain that you do not waste your worship. This is your takeaway that you can walk out of here with is I want to be certain that I'm not wasting my worship. I'm not wasting it in something that's not going to last or something that isn't of great value or eternal value. What are you investing your worship in? Go back to the trail and the trail doesn't lie. Go back to the trail and, and begin to think of the trail that we mentioned and, and what it leads to is this throne and it, what it leads to is an altar. God has told us not that we can't have wonderful things in our lives, not that we can't enjoy great relationships and, 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 and enjoy the beauty of relationships and enjoy the beautiful things that he's made. But what God has said to us is when we begin to elevate those things above him, what that becomes is it becomes idolatry. And, and I don't know about you, but I know this about me is that oftentimes these things can begin to edge into my relationship and begin to edge God out. When we elevate any of these things to the highest place in our hearts, that's when we begin to make these things an idol. Psalm says this, the psalmist writes, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, all other gods. What that means is he is to be above everything else in your life for all the gods of the peoples. What does it say? Church are what worthless. They're just worthless idols. They're not going to last in your life. And so if you're pouring your life into, into these kinds of things above your relationship with God, you're going to find that, that you're wasting your worship. 
He says, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord, he is the one that made the heavens. He's to be reverenced above everything else in our life. So the question we start asking is, what do I really worship? I mean, am I just about talk in my relationship with God? Or is, does it really matter more than anything else? Am I investing my life in that? Am I, am I pouring my life into my relationship and my walk with God Isn't it interesting that whenever God gave us the Ten Commandments, when God gave us the Big Ten, what did he start with? He didn't start with thou shalt not kill or lie or, or, you know, bear false witness or, or, you know, or covet or anything like that. He didn't talk about adultery first. What did he start with? He started with this in Exodus 20. You must not have any other what God before me. Why do you think he started there? God knew this, that if we got this portion of it right, then the others begin to fall into place, right? Isn't that what Jesus said whenever he said the whole law hinges on this very thing, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to give God all of your worship, and all the other things start falling into place. What did Jesus say uh, whenever he was leading us through the model prayer? If you keep trekking through that, he says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you as well, right? So what are we to do? We're to seek God above all else. It's so interesting that he started with this. And I I just thought it's interesting the context of whenever God gave the Ten Commandments there, right? What was happening? Do you remember what was happening there? God had just done some incredibly miraculous deliverance for Israel. They had been in bondage for over 400 years, praying for a deliverer. God sends them Moses. Moses leads them out. God brings these plagues in power. They saw God in all of his power. They saw him do incredible things. They saw him go before them in a pillar of fire by day and a cloud or a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They, their backs were up against the Red Sea. And what did God do? He delivered them. He parted the sea. They saw his miraculous deliverance and hand at work. And then what happened? They got out into the wilderness. God provided food for them. God provided water for them. He provided for them in every possible way. And And yet what did they still do? They built an idol, didn't they? Do you remember when Moses went up on the mountain of God to get the Ten Commandments And he was there for for 40 days gathering that. They began to grow impatient. And what did they do? We need something to worship. They started collecting their jewelry. They started forming an idol. Aaron was was duped into this and bought into this as well. And and, and God is saying, Moses, you better get down there because they need to hear the first one. (laughs) Which is, you shall have no other gods before me. Isn't it interesting that God started with that one? As we are are getting ready here to receive communion, what I want to challenge you to begin to do is just to begin to really think about what it is that you worship. What really has your heart? What is it that you worship? Before you take communion today, what is most important to you? You know, last week I kind of led you through this season of prayer, and I would just begin saying right now, start praying in that manner right now. God, show me if there is something that I worship more than you. Where does my mind drift in these idle moments? Uh, for those of you who are, are Christ followers, you might say, well, I, I worship God. Well, uh, begin to ask God to search your heart about that. And you may find that he affirms that absolutely you worship me first and foremost. Begin, though, just to follow the trail. Look at your checkbook. Look at, look at your calendar. What do you think about it most? What do you talk about most? What are you most obsessed with? During the day, where does your heart drift first? Start hearing from God about that. Here's the other thing that's a takeaway is you have to understand that there is a war going on for your worship. That we have a real enemy that is seeking to distract you from worshiping the Lord. He's been doing that from the very beginning. Jesus talked about this in Luke 10. He said, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan who was Lucifer, early on refused to bow to God and he seeks to spread his mutiny to others. Listen, he is not so much interested in you worshiping him as much as he is being certain that you just don't worship God. And that is what he's about. Paul wrote about it in Romans. It says that these people traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That's what it says. 
So this enemy, he doesn't care who you worship. He would love it if you worship him, but he knows that you're most likely not going to become a Satan worshiper, okay? Most people won't, but he will be sure that you cast your worship for something else. He doesn't want you to worship God, so he's so deceptive, and we are also often so easily duped. I mean, think about it. If Israel, who had seen the hand of God at work, could be deceived into, as Satan was in the camp there, could be deceived into, in spite of all God just did, to building an idol. If Adam and Eve, who walked with God in the, in the relationship, in the cool of the day, could be deceived by the, by the enemy into, into wanting to worship themselves and following their way instead of God's way. He even sought to, to tempt Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus, as you know, said, it says, Next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and what? Worship me. If he had the audacity to try this with Jesus himself, who are we to think that he wouldn't seek to trick us into this same kind of idolatry? And so I'm just saying we just have to be careful. That's why Paul would say, guard your heart. That's why he would say, be watchful. That's why he would say, be on guard on a regular basis because there is a war going on for your worship. And he is so good at tricking us in light of all that God has done in our lives. We often can build an altar to something else. Here's the final thing, okay, before we have communion is we will often become like that which we worship. This is so important that we understand this. That's why worship is so important to God, because we're created in his image. When we worship him, we often become more like him. When we worship him, we become more like Christ. Whatever you worship, you become kind of obsessed with that thing. And, and whatever you become obsessed with, you begin to imitate. Whatever you imitate, you actually begin to become like. And in other words, whatever you value most, you'll ultimately begin to become like that. It will determine who you are. So if you worship money, what you're going to find is that you're going to find yourself with a very greedy heart. And you're going to find yourself kind of being greedy in this sense. If you worship some sinful habit, that same sin will grip your soul and begin to poison your soul. If you begin to worship your material possessions, your life will become about material things which won't last. Now, the last scripture I want to point you to is the psalmist who wrote about this. He said, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. Why let the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does as he wishes. Now look at this, verse 4. Their idols are merely things of silver and gold shaped by human hands. Now he's going to bring personification to it. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. Ears, and cannot hear. And he goes on and kind of goes through the whole list there, okay? The point is this. They have all of these kind of outward images of something that has life, but the reality is there is no life in them. There's no life. Only God has the life. Remember what Paul says? In him, there is life. And we breathe and we exist and we move. Verse 8, and those who make idols, what does he say? This is interesting. And those who make idols, they are just like them. Isn't that interesting? We start becoming like our idols. And we're lifeless and we try to, we try to find our, our meaning and our purpose in this. And so simply put, we become like that which we worship. That's why it's so important to the heart of God. If you don't like who you are becoming, take a quick inventory of the things that sit on the throne of your heart. Begin to take inventory. If you want to become more like Jesus and keep your worship Focus squarely upon who he is. And here's what I want to do before we have communion. I want to just begin to lead us through a time of just prayer like we experienced last week. So I want to ask you just to, you may feel led to bow your heads. You might want to close your eyes. You don't have to. Don't go to sleep, okay? I want to encourage you just now just to begin to ask God just really to start searching your soul. In a moment, we're going to have this time of communion together where we, where we remember all that Jesus has done.
we remember what he's done in our life. Before we do that, though, I just want to invite you to assess your worship. Ask God to show you if there's anything that you're putting ahead of him. It's not about singing a few songs on a Sunday or coming to a service once a week. Worship is about God having all of you every day. Begin to just reflect about who he is. Who is he? He is our redeemer, right? Praise him. Start praising him for the fact that he is your redeemer. Praise him that he is your righteousness. Begin to just give him praise for the fact that he is the source of your strength. Praise him for being the peace in the midst of difficulty. You may be in the middle of a storm in your life right now, and it's just the hardest time in your life, but you as a believer, you know that you have felt an anchor in your soul that maybe you'd never experienced before. And you just want to begin to praise him that he is that anchor for you. Praise him for being your father who is close. Now begin to thank him for what he's done. What has he done in your life? Let me tell you what he has done in mine. He has taken me in all of my filth. And he sent his perfect son to die for my filth. And you know what he's done? He has rescued me out of my sin. Just as he rescued the Israelites from bondage, he has rescued me from bondage to sin. And I want to remember that today. What about you? He's transformed my life. People who knew me before I knew Jesus, there are some who are even in this church that I went to school with, they would be able to tell you he's different. He's transformed my life and I give him praise and thanks for that. What about you? How has he transformed you? He's changed me. And I recognize that I only have one response to him. And do you know what that is? Paul speaks of it in Romans. My only reasonable response to all that he has done for me is to offer myself as a living sacrifice. Paul calls that the kind of worship that he accepts. You might need to begin to just enter into a moment of confession. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins, Lord. Maybe there's been a sin of idolatry in your life. Maybe something has been elevated above your relationship with Christ. Just ask him to show you and then begin to confess that to him. Scripture says he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. He doesn't want to point that sin out in your life to make you feel guilty and condemned and ashamed. He wants to point that out in your life because he loves you and he knows that it is robbing you of the fullness of the relationship that he wants you to have with him. Just confess it to him. just lost your first love for Jesus. I really thought about that this week. The church at Ephesus, they, they knew how to go through the motions. At one time, they were so on fire for Christ. And they knew the religious activity. They knew the things to say. Jesus even said, your deeds are many. But then he's going to lovingly confront them in the book of Revelation. He's going to say, but 
you have lost your first love, they had lost their worship. Maybe that's you today. And he's just touching your heart about that. Maybe we would just begin to fall in love with Jesus again for who he is. In a moment, I'm going to pray for all of us. And whenever I finish, I'm going to invite you to either come to the front or there's a station in the back. The ushers who are there will give you guidance which direction to go. But you'll come down the middle and you'll go on the outside back to your seats. And what you'll find is you'll find some bread and you'll find a a cup. And the bread is representative of the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us to be able to be in relationship as he suffered for us. The juice, it represents the blood that was spilled for us. And without the blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Maybe today when you get back to your seat and you partake of communion, it's just a holy time for you. Just a time for you to renew your first love. It's a symbolic act of of how Jesus gave his life for you. And as you partake of it today, maybe this would just be that special moment you say, Lord, as you gave your life for me, I now give you all of my life. I want to remind you that communion and the Lord's Supper is for those who are believers. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. And today would be the day that you know that pull has been there all along. You know that there's been that emptiness in your life. And today Jesus has shown you who he is and you would just call upon him to be your Savior. You'd say, Jesus, save me. Be my Savior. I believe you are the Messiah. By faith, Lord, I want eternal life in you. Father, today, we praise you, Lord, in view of who you are and what you've done in our lives. And, Lord, our only reasonable response is to worship you with all of ourselves, God. Not just part, not just Lord, for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning, not just even 15 minutes a day, but Lord, you want us to walk with you daily. You want us to walk with you in fellowship, Lord, every single moment of our lives. So Lord, we ask you to forgive us. I ask you corporately to forgive us where we've made our worship about us. Lord, as we receive the bread today and we receive the juice, We offer our lives back to you in worship. Teach us, Lord, more about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. Make this just a special and holy time of fellowship with you, Lord. As we remember you. As we renew. As we refocus what matters most. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand. And as you're directed by the ushers, you can begin to receive communion. If you don't feel led today, that's also perfectly acceptable. But please take these back to your seats and at your own pace, begin to reflect upon your worship today and offer yourself to the Lord.